All right, uh, so this is our uh, second part of our, our class called Next, the Afterlife and This Life. Uh, so last week was kind of an introduction. We got a few people that weren't here, so I'll just mention a few things that we talked about last week. Because uh, we talked about there's bad reasons to talk about the afterlife, what happens after you die, but I think there are also some, some good reasons, right? That it's not really good if it's just kind of pointless speculation or if you're using it to control people or try and figure out things that uh, we don't really need to know, right? Jesus himself says he doesn't know when he's coming back, so people who say they know uh, I think are treading on some <laughs> kind of thin ice. Uh, but there are good reasons, right? That if it's, if it's pastoral, if it's about giving hope, to know that uh, there is good in store uh, when there's tragedy in this life, uh, we see that's a consistent thing that people uh, in, in Scripture are willing to talk through. And then the second good reason that where I really focused, uh, or, or want to focus with a lot of this class, is about um, ethics, basically. How, how what you believe about where we're going shapes how you live right now. Right? That's, that's in the title, the afterlife and this life. Because uh, where you think the story's going is going to shape how you live tomorrow. Um, and so if we have a misunderstanding of what God has in store that's going to shape us in ways it's not exactly where God wants us to be. And when it comes to a topic like this, uh, there's a lot of ideas or, or even phrases sometimes that, um, right, it's just what everybody knows about what's going to happen. Uh, and so what I want to do with this is reevaluate some of those things. See, well, what does the Bible really say about some of these different ideas, right? As I mentioned last week, the word afterlife, doesn't actually show up in the Bible. It's just a word that, that we use, right? And that's not inherently bad. We just want to be aware of when our language and the language of Scripture is maybe slightly not the same. Uh, and so we're going to focus on um, the big ideas of resurrection and restoration, how that's where the story is ultimately aiming, uh, but kind of figuring out what all those things mean. And uh, I didn't really talk about kind of the, the structure of the class, but what we're going to do first uh, today is going to be focused on the Old Testament, as you can see on, on your handout. If you didn't get one of those, there's still a few around. Uh, so what people believed uh, in the earliest uh, time, earlier earlier parts of Scripture. And then see how that uh, grows over time and then get towards the idea of resurrection and how central that is. So we'll, we'll camp out in uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because Paul has a lot to say about resurrection in those, those two books. And from there, we'll move into, okay, if, if that's what resurrection is for us, what implications does that have for all of creation? What is God doing with everything? Uh, and kind of move forward from there and get into other topics like judgment and hell and those sort of fun things. All right. Any questions about that? Uh, that little, little recap there? All right. Well, as I said, today we're going to be talking about Old Testament views on the afterlife. And really, just kind of up front to summarize uh, what we're going to talk about, for the most part, uh, beliefs were kind of vague or unclear to us what people thought during Old Testament times. Uh, and they were more focused on how life is lived here, right? They're more focused on this life than on the afterlife, at least as far as we can tell, right? And yet, the, these hopes of resurrection and restoration that I've said are central, those are consistent with God's promises in the Old Testament. And it's a natural outgrowth and conclusion of what God had already been doing and what God promised to do in the future. 
So we're going to start with uh, some vocabulary, right? Talking about language is always kind of important. So what are some of the, the words, what are some of the ideas, the terms that, that we find in the Hebrew scriptures uh, to talk about uh, what comes next? So the first one, and uh, you know, uh, Bible nerd words are kind of my catchphrase for words that nobody else really cares about aside from nerds like me. Uh, but the first one we're going to talk about is Sheol. This is a Hebrew word, like that actually is a Hebrew word. Uh, that sometimes, depending on translations, they may leave it untranslated. Uh, some may translate it as the grave or the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. Uh, there's another Hebrew word for the pit, which seems to be pretty synonymous, right? They all have the same idea. Uh, so this idea of Sheol, right? First thing to know is this is not the Christ, traditional Christian idea of hell, right? And I, there may be some translations that occasionally will tr use the word hell for Sheol, and I would say that's not a good translation, especially as we're going to see with, with a lot of the baggage that we bring to the word hell, uh, that that's not how uh, people in, in the Old Testament times would have understood, understood this. Uh, really, Sheol is, is more like the Greek idea of Hades, where it's just kind of the underworld, the place of the dead. And in fact, when the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek, this is in between the time of the Old and New Testament, they actually used the Greek word Hades to translate Sheol. Right? And we'll talk about that later more, about the idea of Hades and hell and how they're not the same. So it's, it's not really, it's not a place of punishment necessarily, um, it's just kind of where the dead go. Although, you know, again, it's unclear. Did people think that's where everybody went? Or did you only go there in certain circumstances? Uh, it does seem like Sheol is associated with a bad death. Um, not that it's a place for the bad people, right? It's not the bad place, even though it's not a good place. Um, but it's not the idea that if you... Again, it's, it's inconsistent, but it doesn't always seem like if you were a bad person, you go to this bad place called Sheol. Uh, if you die in, uh, in grief or uh, in, you know, not in a, in a way you would have wanted, then that's associated with the idea of Sheol. We'll see some of this in the passages we'll look at in a minute. Uh, but again, the idea that that's the bad place, well, it's, it's unclear if there's an alternative place, right? Some maybe imply there is, but a lot don't seem to say that. So let's look at a few passages that talk about this, this Sheol place and what happens or doesn't happen there. Uh, and today we're going to be flipping through our, our Bibles quite a bit, so hope your, your fingers are nimble. Uh, we're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I will say about uh, a lot of these passages that we're going to look at here as we're talking about Sheol, they're fairly negative. Uh, several of them come from uh, a place of suffering, right? People are not in a good uh, headspace necessarily, or they have kind of a negative perspective as they talk about this. Um, so we'll see that. Right? If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's kind of a pessimistic book, although there's a lot, I think, to, to enjoy or to love about it too. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, um, There is no work, or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. All right. So all these things we associate with life of working and thinking and uh, learning, there's none of that there. All right. And he also again, because it's pretty negative, 
that's where you're going, right? Uh, so at least Ecclesiastes thinks that that's where everyone's headed. Uh, another example is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is uh, sometimes called the Psalm of Silence because it's one of these lament psalms uh, where it doesn't end with this note of confidence in God. Uh, it ends by saying, my only friend is the darkness, which is uh, kind of rough, but sometimes there's a need for a message like that. Um, so Psalm 88, starting in verse 10, says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Right, this is, the psalmist is talking to God. Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Uh, is your faithfulness in Abaddon? Right, these are all uh, related terms for this Sheol, the grave pit idea. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are you saving help in the land of forgetfulness? Right? He's asking all these questions, but the implication is no. Right? That God is not doing things for the people or spirits that are there, and they're not really doing anything for God. Uh, let's see, Job chapter fourteen. I know this is we're going through them quick, and we'll we'll get a chance to kind of talk through them a little bit more afterwards or get get reactions. Job chapter 14, right? This is again Job, if you know his story, has seen a lot of things uh, that have not been pleasant. And so most of the book is him complaining and lamenting to God about uh, why this happened or how this shouldn't have happened. Uh, and he has a lot of questions too. So Job chapter 14, starting in verse 10. But mortals die and are laid low. Humans expired, and where are they? As waters fall fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down and do not rise again. Until the heavens are no more, no more, they will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. Oh, as you would hide me in Sheol, as you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If mortals die, will they live again? All the days of my service I would wait until my release should come. All right, again, a lot of rhetorical questions. And as as... Christians on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, we might answer that a little differently, right? If people die, will they live again? Well, we might, we would probably say yes, but he seems to be implying no, right? This is the sort of question where it's like, well, yeah, we know that there's, we're not going to live again. This is it. Uh, so again, uh, pretty negative. Now, one that's really interesting to me, I talked about this idea of a bad death. Go to Genesis chapter 37. Any of these as, as we go, I probably should have if you have questions or comments about individual ones, we can do that, but uh, at least want to hear all of them first. Uh, so Genesis 37. This is uh, Joseph, right? It's in the story of Joseph and his father Jacob, right? Uh, Joseph had a bunch of brothers, and they didn't like him because he was kind of annoying. And so <laughs> they, they, pretend, they, they sell him to slavery, but they tell their dad that he died, right? And so they take this coat of many colors, they cover it in blood, they take it to their father Jacob, and tell him, yeah, Joseph died, sorry. Uh, and so here, look at how Jacob responds to, to this news. Uh, chapter th 37, verse 35. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father bewailed him. All right, so uh, when he's mourning, he's like, I'm... There's nothing to live for anymore because my favorite son is dead. Sorry, other sons. Uh, and so he anticipates going to this place of Sheol. Right? So a lot of it is kind of negative, um, but it's at least neutral. Right? Either it's, it's not a great place, but more that there's nothing to do there, nothing happens. Less, it's more that than 
some idea of torture or something else. Any questions about just those, those passages? All right, let's keep going. But those are not the only ways of talking about death, and there's some that are less negative, at least. So another phrase is the idea of being gathered to one's people. Right? So-and-so died, and he was gathered to his people. And what's interesting about this is we have that, that phrase that is used for the same person for Jacob. Uh, so go to Genesis chapter 49. Right? So when Jacob thought he had lost his favorite son, he was thinking about Sheol. But look what happens after he's been reunited with Joseph. He knows that he didn't die and all of his sons are reconciled and he finally does die. Look at what it says in Genesis 49, 33. So when Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. All right? And that same phrase is used for a lot of important biblical people like Abraham and Isaac and Aaron and Moses. That's what all those other references on your handout are talking about when they died. They are gathered to their people. Um, so that phrase, what does that imply to you? Be gathered to your people. What, what is that pointing at? Does it sound positive, negative? What do you think? Yeah, your, your family, right? We're going to see family is a, a very important uh, in the Hebrew mindset. So yeah, it's this idea of you're going to go be with family. right? Because I know, and, and I think we had this question written down last week, are we going to see our loved ones again? After we die, that's one of the most common things that we wonder about. Um, and I think that's a valid pastoral concern. But even here we're seeing they did have some idea of being with your people, right? In what sense? That's harder to say, but uh, to me that seems a more positive way of talking about what happens because you're not alone, right? You're, you're with your people. Yeah, is it just the other Jewish people, right? Or is it, is it more than that? Right, and that's, I think that's a good ongoing question to think about is, is what they talk about in the uh, Old Testament, was that just for them or is that helping us understand uh, a bigger picture? So they would have thought of just being with their family, but is that limited to just those people or not? Um, it's kind of unclear, but I would say it's bigger than that. And along with this, uh, the state of the dead is often described just as, as sleep, right? Um, so you see this most, mostly in the book of Kings. Uh, when the kings die, it says, and so-and-so... Uh, sleeps with, uh, slept with his ancestors or with his fathers, right? So it's again that same idea of being with your people in some, in some sense. Uh, and that's again, it's not tied to whether they were good or bad, right? In, in the book of Kings, most of the kings are pretty bad people. Uh, but whether they were bad or good, whether they followed God or not, it uses the same phrase. They, they slept with the ancestors. And, Oh, when you hear that, what does the idea of sleep imply to you? To me, sleep sounds a little more positive than just saying like you're there and but you can't, you don't have anything to do. All right, it sounds less boring. And and this probably makes sense to us, right? Uh, into the New Testament, this this metaphor still continues, right? So you you have depending on your translation, it may say. Uh, right, that, that passage we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? What about those who have fallen asleep, right? Some translations may just say died because that's what they mean. And, and we talk about that too, right? The big sleep is, is sometimes how we talk about death, right? Uh, in some ways that, that's peaceful, right? It's the idea of rest. Uh, but it also means you're not experiencing anything. Um, so it's neither good nor bad. Uh, along with the idea of like if they're asleep, 
that implies you could wake them up. And in fact, there's one story in uh, the book of 1 Samuel <clears throat> where King Saul, things are not going well for him, and so he goes to a, a medium, uh, a witch, which he's not supposed to do, and he, he asks her to bring the spirit of Samuel up from the dead. So it's kind of, he was asleep, and they woke him up, and uh, he wasn't happy about that, right? So again, it, it all fits in that, that same idea. So those are just a few of the, the concepts, the ideas, the terms that we see to talk about uh, how the Hebrew people understood what happens when you die, right? As you see, it's fairly vague, um, but it's more, I would say it's more neutral than positive or negative, right? And there's less uh, about, you know, what you did in this life and how that affects where you end up, right? And, <clears throat> I mean, this is a question that a lot of scholars and people have, right? Did they believe more about the afterlife? And we just don't know, right? We're only seeing glimpses of it, right? I mean, kind of reminds us something about Scripture is that these writers didn't just sit down to explain every detail about every theological topic, right? They were writing histories and, and poetry for a specific situation. And so these things are going to come up because they're in their minds, but it's not like they sat down to try and explain every detail of it like, like I'm trying to do right here. Uh, and sometimes we wish they would, but uh, we take what we get. <clears throat> All right, any questions about uh, any of those terms, other ideas that, that you think of, at least as far as the Old Testament's concerned? All right, so there's a big question that comes along with this, right? That if, if their beliefs about the afterlife, what happens when you die, don't seem to be a major factor of, of their faith, um, what, does that, what does that mean? What are the implications of that, right? If there's no afterlife, either good or bad, what reason is there to serve God, to love God, right? If there's no afterlife, does that make this life pointless? It's more important because... Okay. Uh, YOLO, as they used to say. <laughs> you only live once. That was People don't even say that anymore. But So I'm obviously not cool. Uh, but that's the idea, right? Well, you only live once, so you better... Uh, well, okay, so if you only live once, what are some different ways that that could lead you to live this life? So I think that can point in two very different directions. Okay, I'm just going to do what I want to do, right? I don't have to worry about, right? You may, like, if your attitude is, well, you only, you only live once, right? You might kind of go crazy, like, well, there's no consequences, so I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. Or you could go the other direction and say, like, all right, this is all I've got. I've got to really be careful and, and not go crazy because this is all there is, right? Uh, and you can see, right, even today you see both of those attitudes kind of play out in different ways. Yeah, right? And, and even if we're not seeing the earth swallow people up, right? As you got, as a couple of you mentioned, we see there are natural consequences to what you do, right? Do certain things, you're going to end up in jail, or you're going to kill yourself, right? Um, you're going to either improve or worsen the state of your life, right? Uh, and just because there's not eternal consequences doesn't mean that there's no difference in what kind of life you live. Um, you know, I, I would disagree with a viewpoint that says, all right, well, if, for example, if there's no hell to be afraid of, then I can just do whatever I want. I can go, you know, steal as much as I want, and I can kill people, and, right, it doesn't matter. Well, I think it does matter, right? Not just for those other people, uh, but also for you, right? And that's a lot of what we see in, in the Old Testament uh, instruction, right? That, um, well, for one thing, right, the, the question was, is there any reason to serve God even if there's not uh, 
an eternal uh, afterlife? Well, yeah, because God still deserves it. Right? God still created you, and God has still done things for you in this life. Is the only reason you serve God because you think you're going to get to go to heaven? Um, right? That hope is not bad, but in some ways that's actually a little bit selfish. If the only reason you want to do good things in this life is to get some reward, you're not really uh, being formed into the likeness of Christ too much, if that's your only motivation. Right? It's actually a higher motivation to do good, even if you're not going to get uh, some gold star for it. And right, there's also a future for your children. Right? What kind of world do we want to leave for the generations that come after us? Right? I think we would all agree it's not the best perspective to say, oh, who cares, I'll be dead, uh, or I'll get to be in heaven. Right? Uh, no, we still want to care what there's going to be life after us, hopefully. Um, and so that, that matters. We see that's going to be a, a big theme as well. Um, God's instructions in the Old Testament make life better this life, right? For, for you, for individuals, and for the community, right? They have a much bigger focus on, on everybody, right? We tend to be very individualistic, right? Well, I can do this and I can get away with it and it doesn't, doesn't matter. Well, no, your actions are affecting the people around you. So, uh, so many of the laws assume that that's how people understand things. So in, in the Old Testament, I would say two of the big kind of focal points uh, of Israel's hope are on family and the land, right? And this really goes back to where Israel starts with the call of Abraham, right? In Genesis chapter 12, uh, this is the start of, of the Jewish people. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promise with capital P, I would say, uh, that informs all of of who Israel is and what they were meant to do, their purpose. Uh, And so you see there, right, this blessing, I will give you this land, and I will bless you with this family, make you a great nation. Uh, and so it is, in that sense, very earthly focused, right? God doesn't come to Abraham and say, all right, if you leave your country and go over here as a show of faith, then I'll let you into heaven someday, right? Um, it's, it's focused on these blessings that, that do live on after Abraham, but um, they live on here. And so... If this is kind of the center of their hope, this this family, this this place, um, that has ties to a lot of ideas, including the idea of salvation, right? For us as Christians, when we think of salvation, we again are mostly thinking about, uh, I get to go to the good place and not the bad place. And that's not wrong, but uh, as we, if you look at the whole of Scripture, the idea of salvation is is bigger than that. And so, salvation in the Old Testament primarily focuses on the idea of earthly flourishing, right? That you're experiencing goodness and joy and love and peace in, in this world, right? The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, but it has this idea of not just peace, but wholeness and things being right, right? That's, that's salvation is when you're enabled to do that, right? So, it's when God takes away anything that would get in the way of that peace, that that flourishing, that enjoyment of creation, right? That can be uh, outer threats, enemies, or inner threats, right? Things in our own heart that keep us from uh, living out life fully. Right? Exodus is the foundational 
salvation story in the Old Testament. Actually, I would say in all the Bible, right? Where God comes and saves his people from slavery so that they can go and, and worship. So they can be the people that God created them to be. Um, and so along with that, God gives them the law, the instructions, so they can be the right kind of people. Right? That's what salvation looks like, and all other ideas of salvation are kind of picking up from that, uh, including what Jesus does. Right? It's His death and resurrection also frees us from slavery, but instead of Egypt, it's from sin and death. Uh, and so that's that, so that salvation ties into that hope of uh, family and land and wholeness here. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, right, things don't always go well. Uh, the Israelites uh, very often don't go the way that God wants them to go because, just like us, they are human. Uh, we would make the same mistakes. And so, uh, when you get to, especially the books, the prophets, right, after Israel has, has messed things up in various ways uh, and eventually gets kicked out of the land and, and they're exiled because of uh, poor choices, uh, there's this prophetic hope of restoration, right? And uh, kind of a perfected land. All right, so let's look at an example of this in Isaiah chapter 2. So we're going to see how this is, is still focused on the land, the promised land of Israel, um, but it seems to be kind of looking to the future as well uh, as something deeper than just, right, we're going to need to go back to our country and just go back to normal. Right? It's something bigger. So Isaiah chapter 2 starting in verse 2. It says, In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate from many peoples. Shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Right? So you have this vision of kind of universal peace. Everybody, not just the Jewish people, are coming to God. And in a lot of that, I mean, it's, we're definitely not there yet, right? We don't learn war anymore. Um, we're still still working towards that, hoping for that, and yet. Uh, at least here in Isaiah, what, uh, the prophets, when they looked at it, they saw this as happening in Israel, right? In this, their physical nation, their country there, right? Even the mountain, right? It's talking about the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was built, right? Because to them, that's how they understood where God was present, right? And we'll see how that image gets picked up and transformed later. But, right, their hope centered on this land that God had given them. And so, as Isaiah is getting this vision of where it's all going, it's still centered on on that land um, and God doing things, again, for all people. Uh, along with that, right, this exile and and return or restoration is, is a big theme. Uh, as we talk about resurrection, an interesting passage that seems like it might relate is in a, we won't look at this one right now, but Ezekiel 37, there's, Ezekiel has this vision of this valley of dry bones, right? Right. Um, and God tells them to speak to the bones, and they come back to life, right? And now, as we know about resurrection, that kind of sounds like that, but really, the way that story is functioning uh, in Ezekiel's time was this is an image, a metaphor of exile and restoration, right? Exile is death, restoration is, is new life. 
but again, like I said, that's kind of an interesting uh, metaphor as, as we know more about what God is, is doing. Uh, but again, their hopes were centered on, on this land, and so to be out of that land was death, to be brought back was life. So, right, that seems to be the main focus, this, this family, this land, uh, being restored to it if we're away from it. But, you know, there's, there's some issues that it seemed like some writers kind of had some questions, right? It's kind of like, well, well, wait a minute, right? What about righteous people who suffer and die? And in fact, suffer and die because of their commitment to God, right? If the promise is, do things the way God says to do them and you'll be blessed in this life, well, sometimes people uh, get killed or uh, persecuted for doing things the way God wants. What about them, God? Uh, or what about when the land isn't ours? What about when pagans come in and they take over and we're living in our own land, but we're not in charge of it, right? The, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the Persians, right? All these huge empires come in. What are we going to, how can God make this right if, if we don't even own our land? Or this is the, the even deeper question, right? If God's love is faithful to a thousand generations, as many places say, well then, what does it mean for God to be faithful to those generations, right? How far does that go? And is that limited to just this life in this land? And so, you start to see hints of a greater hope, uh, of something more than just, uh, if, if we live right, God will give us this land and let us live here and, and be blessed, right? It's not, it's not excluding that or saying that's wrong, but it's, it's trying to answer those other questions, right? What about these situations? So let's look at a couple of these passages. Uh, go to Psalm 16. And again, uh, with, with several of these we're going to look at, um, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, they're all kind of poetic, and so it's always hard to say how much of this is metaphorical. Uh, there's different ways you can understand it, so in what way do they intend it, right? Uh, one of the, the big things over the course of this class is I want to avoid immediately going to a very literal understanding, right? We want to take it as true, uh, but in what sense is it true, right? There's more than one way to, to understand what this is saying. So uh, Psalm 16, starting in verse 9. It says, therefore, my heart is glad, my soul rejoices, my body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful ones see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you hear that, what do you think the psalmist is talking about? What is God doing for him there? Right? You don't give me up to Sheol, you don't, you don't let me see the pit. Is he talking about just... I was in a bad situation, and I, I got out of it. You got me out of it. Or is there more? I don't know. What, when you read that, what do you hear? But I think the question is, is he talking about what's happening in this life or what's happening after that life, right? Because, I mean, we've all been maybe in those situations where we thought, man, I was, I was good as dead. And that's kind of the way that they talk sometimes. So they mean, like, in that metaphorical way of I was just having a really uh, bad few weeks, or like, no, I literally was uh, about to die. All right? You can understand it in both ways, that, that they just were going through some really tough things, and then God brought them out of it, and it felt like they were uh, as good as dead, and, and now they're alive. Or this could be a hope of, you know, you're not going to just let me be dead. Right? There's a path of life. 
and we're going to experience your joys, your pleasures forevermore, right? Forever implies more than just this life, which again, when poetry uses the word forever, there's different ways to understand that, but we're not wrong to see that that's pointing towards more maybe than just this life. Uh, Along with that, go to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, we'll read 14 and 15. I probably, this is probably the most that we're going to be like jumping around to different passages in one class, so uh, we'll, we'll slow down a little bit more in, in other times. Just got to work those, those Bible muscles. All right, uh, Psalm 49, 14, and 15. Uh, so in the psalm, he's talking about the difference in um, foolish rich people who trust in themselves and people who aren't like that. Right? So we're going to see there's kind of, it does seem like here, there are different uh, places where people might, might go. So when he says they here, he's talking about these, these foolish, rich people. He says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Straight to the grave they descend, and their form shall waste away. Sheol shall be their home. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Right? Um, it seems like here we're, we're getting this idea of different eternal destinies, Right? That if you live this life in a very selfish way, just for yourself, then that's kind of all you get, right? You're not going to enjoy anything else. But the the writer here is uh, someone who's tried to be humble and not live like that. Uh, he says, what, you're going to ransom my soul from this place of death, right? You will receive me, right? In some sense, going to be with God in a, in a deeper way that we didn't see in other, in other places. Um, Right, and that, even the idea of ransom, right? We use that right? at its core. It's just the idea of to to buy something back that that belongs to you. Uh, but we understand ransom in in a you know metaphorical way that Jesus' death is a ransom for us. That's how he talks about it uh, in Mark ten forty five. Right, so this idea of God uh, rescuing us from this bad fate uh, when we are when we're faithful. All right, so we're seeing there's there's a bit more of a hope there beyond just this life in those couple of psalms. And then in other places we see even even deeper. So go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. Again, if, if you have questions about any of these or want clarification, please slow me down. I'm just going to keep, keep moving. Isaiah 26. Uh, so this is again... Uh, I believe it's talking to people who have who have gone through uh, this this exile. Things are not as they should be, and they're waiting for God to to make things right. Um, so it talks about people crying out to God, calling out for God, and hoping God will make things right for them. And the response in uh, verse 19 of Isaiah 26 says, "Your dead shall live; their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for do- for joy." For your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. Right? That um, again, you can understand that if you wanted to. Metaphorically, is talking about Israel. You're not dead as a as a people, and God is going to raise you up. But it seems to be saying more than that, right? It seems to be um, saying no. Right? Saying your corpses shall rise. That sounds uh, like more than just Israel is going to be uh, a strong country again. Right? And again, it's hard as Christians for us not to, to read into that resurrection. But I don't think that's wrong to see that that's pointing in that direction. Right? That's kind of the way that I think we should understand this is 
is you start with this foundation, this idea of God's blessing and what God is doing for us here. And then over the course of uh, centuries, they're working out, okay, what does that, what does that look like? What does that mean uh, even in uh, to pass this life? Along with that, we won't look at it right now, but in uh, chapter 25, just before that, verses 6 through 8, it talks about the defeat of death, right? Um, that death, and this is again a very uh, important, big New Testament idea, that death is actually the real enemy. It's not these other nations or empires. Death itself is the enemy, and God is going to defeat it. Um, and if death is defeated, uh, that's implying a lot more than just, you know, we get to live a nice life here. All right, now the passage that most clearly talks about resurrection, I would say is talking about resurrection in the Old Testament, is in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, and so this is the clearest resurrection text. It's also most likely the latest text. Um, the book of Daniel, it's set during the Babylonian exile, but it seems pretty clear that it's actually written uh, a little bit later, at least parts of it. Uh, and so it, it's... Um, really under the reign of uh, the Greek uh, leader Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a, he was a really bad guy. Uh, we could go into more about what he did to the Jewish people. Um, but the setting here, if you were back in chapter 11, it talks about martyrdom, right? We had that question. Well, God, what about people who are faithful to you and they died in faithfulness? How are you going to, to bless them? How are you going to be faithful to them? Right? You see that these are people that many of them are losing their lives because they're following God's commands. Um, So the context is martyrdom. And look at what it says here, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Um, Let's see. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. Uh, There shall be a time of anguish such as never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then also verse 13, the very last verse of the book. But you go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. All right, that... That is pretty clearly talking about resurrection, right? Uh, that you'll sleep in the, the dust of the earth, but you'll awake, right? Was, again, this, this idea of sleeping. Um, and so it makes sense that you would, if you have that metaphor of sleep, then you can move that into the metaphor of waking up. And that's one way that uh, Scripture will talk about resurrection, that it's awaking from that sleep into a new kind of life. And even verse 13 seems to talk about three stages, right? Go your way to the end, which could be talking about death. Uh, then you rest, right? Uh, and then you rise, right? And so we're seeing that death, uh, resting, then rising. Right? One of the things we'll talk about eventually is what happens between death and the resurrection, right? That kind of intermediate time. And even there, we're seeing it's some form of, of rest. All right, so uh, questions about, about any of that right, before we get to a conclusion? There's a writer named N.T. Wright, who's written a lot about uh, the resurrection. Um, and he says, uh, as he's looking back over how this all developed, getting into the time of the New Testament and what people believed, he says that hope for bodily resurrection is what sometimes happens when the hope of ancient Israel meets a new challenge. 
Right? He says, resurrection grew out of a faith that recognized God as the source of life and which relied on Him for protection from death and for ultimate vindication. Right? The, again, this is not that God's people changed their beliefs so much as that they worked out what their beliefs entailed right? when they met a new challenge. If God is like this, then this is what God is going to do for us. Right? So much, As I said last week, so much of what we believe about the end is connected to what we believe about God and what God is like and what God is going to do for us. And so, consistently through the Old Testament, it's always connected to their beliefs about God, especially about God's promises and God's covenant. That promise of, of wholeness and peace and having a place and having uh, a family. And so anything that prevents God's goal of, of flourishing is going to be defeated, whether that's an oppressive empire or death itself. Uh, and God's people will enjoy the land that God has promised. And so the bigger question is, okay, so is that just the promised land, that little strip in the Middle East? And is it just for Jewish people? Or is actually God's inheritance for us bigger and include more than, than just uh, the Jews? All right, that's, that's kind of the question we should be asking as we're moving forward into the New Testament. But I think it's also important to recognize that the Old Testament voices are encouraging us to appreciate and enjoy this life as a gift of God. Right? If it were all about the next life, then for one thing, God probably would have revealed that sooner and God wouldn't have given us so much to do here and so much to be blessed with. Um, there's more to the story, right? as we're going to see as we go further in, but this earth-focused message, it, it's still relevant. Right? This idea of enjoying the blessings of this life as a gift from God. Right? And everything that we've said tonight is where we're building from. But I think it's important for us to not lose this vision of the good that God is doing right here and right now and the good God has given us and what we can do with that. And so, to close, I want to read from Ecclesiastes, right? That very pessimistic book uh, that actually has some, I think, encouraging words. I'm going to read this. This is the message translation, uh, so it's uh, a little bit different, but I think it kind of captures what uh, the writer is, is trying to say about, all right, this life is short, but what do we do with it? Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors or scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love. Each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it heartily. For this is your last and only chance at it. So there's neither work nor thoughts or think. The company of the dead, where you're headed. So, go and be blessed. Enjoy the life God's given you. Thanks, everyone.